Before I start this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual shout-out to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels, who took the photograph which adorns the cover art of the podcast. Let's get on with it. Hello and welcome to This Week in Financial Crime. I'm your host, Chris Coke-Bride. As ever with Financial Crime, there's a decent range of stories to ensure that nothing ever gets boring. A little bit on sanctions, so I still cover that first. Then we've got some interesting cyber initiatives announced this week, together with some announcements relating to combating financial crime from an international professional body and the Department of Justice in the USA. We end this week with some bits and pieces on money laundering. As ever, all the links, or indeed most of the links, to interesting bits and pieces are linked in the podcast description. We start this week with Russian sanctions. Well, hmm, here we go. First, we'll start with the UK. Draft regulations have been placed before Parliament setting down the level of damages, that is, the cap, which may be paid in respect of damages from sanctions-related court proceedings. Section 39.2a of the Sanctions and Anti-Money Laundering Act 2018, that's SAMLA, allows for a cap to be set on the amount of damages available where a court is satisfied that the decision concerned in such proceedings was made in bad faith. These regulations specify that the cap is £10,000. No date is provided for the commencement of the regulations. The link to the draft regulations, if you want to take a look at them, is in the podcast description. A minor story is that the UK has amended its individual sanctioned in relation to Russia, Arkady Romanovich Rottenberg has been added, but there have been three removals from the list, two of which were down to, as far as I can gather, mere duplication. From reading the documentation, it seems to be confusion relating to the use of the letter I instead of the letter Y. The link to the update is available in the podcast description. Further minor amendments, I know I said Russian sanctions, but actually... Further amendments were also made to the sanctioned entities which relate to the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. A reminder that it ain't just Russia, other countries as well are subject to it. The link to that is also available in the podcast description. Now we turn attention to beyond the United Kingdom. More action this week. First, the EU has removed restrictive measures against four individuals which were imposed following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The list includes... Viktor Fedorovich Yanukovych, who served as the Ukrainian president from 2010 until 2014, when he was forced from office following the Revolution of Dignity, which urged closer ties with the West, so that Ukraine was looking West rather than East. The link to the relevant regulation is in the podcast description. In not entirely unrelated news, the European Union has also extended some of its um, uh, sanctions. Uh, the press release provides the Council decided today to prolong the duration of the restrictive measures targeting those responsible for undermining or threatening the territorial integrity, sovereignty and independence of Ukraine for a further six months until 15th January 2023. The existing restrictive measures provide for travel restrictions for natural persons freezing of assets, and a ban on making funds or other economic resources available to the listed individuals and entities. Sanctions will continue to apply to 1,206 individuals and 108 entities, many of which are targeted in response to Russia's 
ongoing, unjustified and unprovoked military aggression against Ukraine. Now, we've reported recently of the closeness of the ties between Russia and Turkey following the imposition of sanctions on Russia in light of its invasion of Ukraine. It was indicated that policymakers globally were taking an interest in the relationship which Turkey has with Russia, especially in light of those sanctions. There have been some suggestions of possible sanctions evasion by alternative routes, not only with Turkey, but also with other nation states with which Russia maintains friendly relations. Well, it now seems that policymakers are taking a greater interest in this, and the US and the EU, it was announced this week, are looking with particular focus on Turkish banks, which have become integrated into Russia's mere payment system. And frankly, I can expect to see more on this in coming weeks. One final thing this week on sanctions, Sayedat Nazieva, I'm sure I've mangled that pronunciation, she's the sister of the oligarch and former Arsenal football club shareholder Alisha Usmanov, has been removed from the list of individuals sanctioned by the EU following the Russian invasion of Ukraine, so party time for her. Now we turn away from sanctions to focus on some cyber news which has happened this week. Some interesting bits and pieces churning the wires. First, the EU has announced its Cyber Resilience Act, which will have compliance boards at some of the EU's ICT manufacturers in a bit of a spin. The Act proposes fines of up to 15 million euros, or 2.5% of their worldwide turnover, whichever is higher, for non-compliance with the Act. Now, the European Commission proposes that manufacturers strengthen the security of hardware and software products being sold in the EU, meaning that where a device can connect to the internet, so you've got smart fridges, that sort of thing, TVs, all that, the manufacturer will be responsible for its cybersecurity throughout the product's life cycle. The Act complements the revision of the Network and Information Security Directive, which seeks to harmonise uh, cybersecurity rules across the European Union. National governments have, I think, around 17 months left to complete the process of transposing the Act into their respective national legislations. Sticking with the EU, the Joint Commission, or the Joint Committee rather, of the European Supervisory Authorities, that is, the European Banking Authority, the European Insurance and Occupational Pensions Authority, and the European Security and Markets Authority, this week issued their uh, their Autumn Joint Risk Report. It contained its usual mi mix of projections and horizon scanning, indicating that financial institutions and supervisors should continue to be pre prepared for the following. Uh, a deterioration in asset quality in the financial sector and the impact on financial institutions and market participants more broadly from further increases in policy rates. Also, the potential for sudden increases in risk premia should be closely monitored. The final thing, uh, financial institutions and supervisors should be aware and closely monitor the impact of inflation risks. We know that inflation is rising across, actually it's rising globally, but it's also rising across uh, European Union and broadly, more, more widely than that, European states. All of that's fairly standard stuff, but a significant part of the report was dedicated to the cyber risks associated with war. Of course, anyone following the mainstream and financial press 
can't help but have noticed the stories linked to cyber war emanating from Russia and, frankly, other states. Uh, to be fair, it, it simply isn't Russia. I mean, this week, of course, there was the... Well, it was a week before, actually. Iran was castigated by many, many countries globally for its alleged attacks on Albania. Anyway, um, this report places that as a significant risk to market participants. The uh, The report says directly, financial institutions and supervisors should continue carefully to manage environmental related risks and cyber risks. They should ensure that appropriate technologies and adequate control frameworks are in place to address threats to information security and business continuity, including risks stemming from increasingly sophisticated cyber attacks. Further down in the report is the more stark link to Russia. The Russian war in Ukraine and the increasingly volatile geopolitical environment have highlighted cyber security risks. The frequency of cyber incidents impacting all sectors of activity as measured by publicly available data increased significantly in the first quarter of 2022 compared to the same quarter of last year. The potential for escalation involving cyber attacks remains and a successful attack on a major financial institution or on a critical infrastructure could spread across the entire financial system. Potential consequences also grow ever more far-reaching as the digitalization trend of the financial sector continues. These include disruptions to business continuity, as well as impact on reputation and, in extreme scenarios, liquidity and financial stability. Potential cyber attacks might not be limited to the financial sector only, but also to consumers. In a severe scenario, access to basic services could be impaired, including financial services, and personal data could be compromised. And of course, there are actually well-established mechanisms to provide for compensation to uh, losses which arise out of compromised personal data under the General Data Protection Regulation within the European Union particularly. I suppose the message of this, the clear message of this, is stay vigilant. If you want to read the entire report, and I'd certainly recommend it, there's a link to it in the podcast description. Now we turn to combating financial crime. Some interesting stories, and particularly one focused at the gatekeepers, the gatekeepers of the financial industry, keeping out money laundering such. Basically, the professional people like solicitors. In this case, though, the professional people are accountants. And news has been announced this week that the International Federation of Accountants, IFAC, in cooperation with the International Bar Association, has produced an action plan for fighting corruption and economic crime. In echoing my description of them as gatekeepers, the the action plan provides that, first of all, the global accountancy profession is well-placed in business, public practice, the public sector and society to fight these crimes directly as well as indirectly, by supporting an ecosystem of key actors and policy makers, thereby serving the public interest as enablers of the UN SDGs in every country worldwide. Now, what the plan does is that it identifies five pillars, which it states will provide a consistent framework for action to support the efforts of industry in combating financial crime. The five pillars are harnessing the full potential of education and professional development, supporting global standards, 
contributing to evidence-based policymaking, strengthening our impact, that is their impact, through engagement and partnership, and contributing our expertise, which is of course their expertise, through thought leadership and advocacy. While it contains little by way of surprises, it's certainly worth reading for anybody who is engaged in the profession. The link to the action plan is available in the podcast description, and I would urge anybody who works in accountancy particularly to have a read of it. Also this week, the Deputy Attorney General uh, or at the Department of Justice, uh, Lisa Monaco, gave a speech on corporate criminal enforcement, indicating the direction of travel for the DOJ in relation to economic crime. As she stated in her speech, quotes, with a combination of carrots and sticks, with a mix of incentives and deterrents, we're giving general counsels and chief compliance officers the tools they need to make a business case for responsible corporate behaviour. In short, we're empowering companies to do the right thing and empowering our prosecutors to hold accountable those that don't. This encouragement to engage in positive reporting is nothing new, frankly. The fight against financial crime does need carrots as well as sticks, and carrots have become more prevalent in recent years. It's good to see, I think, the reinforcement of this at that law enforcement level. It reiterates the commitment to it. The link to the full speech, it's not particularly long, is available in the podcast description. Now, we end this week's Financial Crime Weekly by turning our focus to money laundering. We'll start this week with a hark back to something we looked at earlier in issue 20 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, and that was some action which was taken by the United Kingdom Gambling Commission, which fined Entain Group a total of £17 million for failures in its money laundering or anti-money laundering systems and controls. Well, this approach, this attack, has not become, uh, not gone unnoticed. In Australia this week, the Australian Transaction Reports and Analysis Centre, Austrac, has this week announced that it has opened an investigation into Entain to uh, determine whether its operations are in compliance with Australian anti-money laundering and counter-terrorism financing laws. Entain has around one-sixth of Australia's online betting market under its Ladbrokes brand. Uh, a spokesman for Entain said they were cooperating with the investigation. There's certainly been an uptick in this. There's certainly been a marked increase in the number of gambling entities which are being focused upon across the globe as I said, I've noted in previous weeks of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast the activity of the Gambling Commission in this area, taking action for failure to engage fully with their anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism obligations. And again, I mentioned a story a couple of weeks ago about how the US was looking at this as the potential threat through the gambling sector from money laundering, etc., was one thing that needed to be focused upon by the policymakers. But here we have Australia now doing the same. It seems that they're waking up to the potential threat posed by the gambling sector. Look out for more in this area. Undoubtedly, there's going to be more. In other money laundering news this week, the Financial Action Task Force and Interpol have announced the launch of a joint asset recovery initiative following the FATF 
Interpol Round Table engagement, which was held on the 12th and 13th of September this week. The release which made the announcement provides, While asset recovery should be a key pillar of a country's approach to combating money laundering and terrorist financing, countries intercept and recover less than 1% of global illicit financial flows. Certainly that's according to estimates made by the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. Stolen assets are often moved out of countries quickly and channeled to or through multiple countries, rendering the process of asset recovery complex and requiring lengthy international cooperation. The first ever FATF Interpol Roundtable Engagement event gathered 150 high-level experts who highlighted the pressing need to, quote, promote national policies and actions that prioritize the tracing, seizure, and confiscation of criminal assets, that enhance operational cooperation at the national, regional, and international levels, and to increase effective information sharing among public authorities and with the private sector. Many of those themes that have come out of this collaborative event, many of those themes have actually come to the policymakers' attention in other jurisdictions around the world, and I can think particularly of the United Kingdom, where that approach, particularly in increased and effective information sharing, has been identified as being central to combating financial crime. The uh, policy uh, statement which accompanied the event concluded participants agreed that a stronger understanding of the global financial crime landscape, especially in relation to cyber-enabled financial crime, is central to efforts against international flows. Again, if you want to read the announcement, it's quite a short announcement. The link is available in the podcast description. And finally this week, Dansk Bank has been fined 1.82 million euros by the Central Bank of Ireland for failures in its anti-money laundering regime over a lengthy period from 2010 to 2019. RTE reports that Shauna Cunningham, the Central Bank's Director of Enforcement and Anti-Money Laundering, said, It's imperative that firms implement robust transaction monitoring controls which are appropriate to the money laundering risks present and the size, activities, and complexity of their business. These controls must be applied to all customers, irrespective of their risk rating, as they enable firms to detect unusual transactions or patterns of transactions, and where required, apply enhanced customer due diligence to determine whether the transactions are suspicious. That's it. For this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast, if you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me, all being well, again next Sunday with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a great week, everyone.